So, you'll remember that last week, um, we spoke a bit about evangelism and the Alpha course that we're going to be um, starting in September. And I sort of um, introduced it and I, I mentioned how um, over the, the, the next um, six to eight weeks, we're going to have a series of sermons that take some of the, the challenges of, of Alpha, some of the topics that are um, talked about, and we're going to put them into a sermon series. And it will serve two things. Firstly, it's, it's, um, it's never a bad thing to be reminded of some of the fundamentals of our faith. And secondly, it's going to help um, anyone here who doesn't know the first thing about Alpha. Um, when, I, when I say later on in, in, the, in the summer, go and invite people, you will know what it is that you're inviting them to, which is always a good thing. So... This morning... This morning's sermon is entitled, Boring, Untrue, Irrelevant. Now, some would argue that most of my sermons could carry that title. Don't laugh, it's where you say, no, no. (laughs) But thankfully, there's a question mark at the end. It's it's not a statement, there's a a hanging question there. You see, um, one one of the statements that the Alpha Course begins with is this. Christianity, boring, untrue, irrelevant. Because for so many people in the world, that's, that's the way that they feel about the Christian faith. Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the, the great novelist, he wrote Treasure Island and many other things. Um, he, was, he was a great diarist. He used to keep diaries. And there's one famous entry. One Sunday, his diary simply, simply read, went to church today and was not depressed. It was such a surprise that he'd come away from church feeling actually quite good about things that he actually he took the time. That was his sole diary entry. That was the one remarkable thing that happened to him that day that he'd gone to church and for once he hadn't felt depressed. Well, I hope, I hope that if you are diarists, then you don't make an entry like that ever because I would hope that when you leave church, you, you, you don't feel miserable, you don't feel beaten up, you don't feel depressed. Instead, you leave the building feeling somewhat more positive about the world that you're going back out into than you did when you entered the building. A church should be a place that, that fills us with the reminder of, of the hope that we have in Jesus, the joy to be found even in the sufferings of life if we know Jesus. But for so many people, Christianity, it just seems boring. Church just seems boring. It also seems untrue. For so many people, church is just this, this, this set of fairy stories, this set of, of lovely moral fables which, yeah, okay, they've got some good meaning, but there's no truth in it. And for other people, it's simply irrelevant. We talk of a God of love and grace and peace in a world that is full of hatred and anger and war. Clearly, if God ever did exist, he moved on a long time ago. But one of the things that strikes me when we run Alpha, or even just in conversations that I might have when I'm out and about during the week, and I share with people what I do, and we get into a conversation about church and about faith, so many people, 
So many people make the statement that they're not religious, they don't go to church, but they do think there's something. There's something. And they leave it there. And I, I, I can't, I just can't accept that. You see, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. And this is something that, that I read when I was first starting out in faith, and it just really struck me. And I think, it, I think there's a lot of wisdom and truth in it. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It doesn't make any sense to say, well, I believe in something, I just can't be bothered to explore it. If you believe that there is something, that there is something in the spiritual realm, then, then that's, that, that's massive, that's huge. You're saying there's this, this unseen world. You're saying that there's, there's, there's life after death. There's, 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 a, there's a force for good and there's a force for evil. There is something else out there. And yet so many people will say, yeah, I think there probably is. And then they'll do nothing about it. And that makes no sense in life. It's either, of absolute, it's either absolute nonsense, in which case I want nothing to do with it, or there's something there, and I need to know what it is. I need to investigate it. I need to look more deeply and define and understand what it is and what implications it has for the rest of my life. So many people have this feeling that there is something that they just can't, bring themselves to, to look into it. Or maybe, maybe that's not fair. Maybe it's not that they can't bring themselves to, to investigate and do the work. Maybe it's that as a church, as, as the church across the world, we've become a little bit insular, a little bit embarrassed about sharing our faith. I, I went to a talk by um, the evangelist um, uh, Rico Tice um, a couple of months ago, and he said so many Christians just don't like talking about their faith. And he, I don't know if I entirely agree with this statement, but he said, and it's interesting, he said, um, because they're just, they're just scared that people are going to turn around and say, well, that means that you're homophobic. And he said that in, in, in evangelical surveys, that seems to be one of the biggest barriers to people sharing their faith. This one social issue that they feel a bit unsure of. And he said, actually, for the rest of the world out there, that's not, their big, that's not their biggest concern. For some people it will be, of course, but it's not their biggest concern. And so we don't share the power of the gospel of grace and love and peace of Jesus Christ because of the fear that one prickly subject might be brought up. And yet there are so many people with this, this hole inside them. This, this, this missing piece of the jigsaw. In his um, book, it was, I think it was early 2000s that he came out, Barack Obama wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. And um, he says, he's, he, talks about, he talks about the number of people he sees who have this, this missing piece inside them. He says, each day it seems thousands of Americans are going about their daily rounds, dropping off the kids at school, driving to the office, flying to a business meeting, shopping at the shopping center, trying to stay on their diets, and coming to the realization that something is missing. They're deciding that their work, their possessions, their diversions, their sheer busyness are not enough. 
They want a sense of purpose, a narrative arc to their lives, something that will relieve a chronic loneliness or lift them above the exhausting, relentless toll of daily life. They need an assurance that somebody out there cares about them, is listening to them, that they're not just destined to travel down a long highway toward nothingness. It's not just in America where we find this. We find this across the world. People who are, who, who are searching for something, constantly trying to satisfy themselves with, with material goods or with, with relationships or, or with, with promotions. But Jesus offers something different. Jesus points to himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus pointed to himself and said, I am, I am the way. There was no other, there's no other way to, to fill that void inside us, which exists inside us because we were made by God. We were made by God to, to, to love him, to have this close relationship with him. And if we don't have that relationship with him, then something fundamental to our being is missing. And Jesus came into the world to offer us a way to, to take that piece of the jigsaw and to put it in our heart. Because God doesn't want us to be separate from him. So many people in the world say that Christianity is, is boring, untrue or irrelevant. And sometimes it's because there's been examples through, through the ages which, which haven't really done the, the, the Christian faith any favours. Um, there are two very famous 19th century Russian novelists. So there's one, Leo Tolstoy. He wrote War and Peace. Um, if, you, if you're not sure about War and Peace, go into the literature section in Waterstones. It's probably the fattest novel in there. It's huge. It's, it's about 1,200 pages long. Anybody here have read, read War and Peace? Yeah, very impressive, very impressive. I got about 800 pages into it once and then left my copy on the train one day and by the time I got round to replacing it, I couldn't remember where I was and I thought, I'm not starting that again. <laughs> so, um, so I watched the film instead. Um, I know, I know, it's terrible. But it's, 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 a great, it's a great novel. It's written by Leo Tolstoy. So... Fyodor Dostoevsky, he wrote Crime and Punishment. Anyone read that? Yeah, very good, yeah. Um, that's slightly shorter. Um, still a difficult read, but brilliant, brilliant. Anyway, these two Russian novelists had two very different takes on the Christian faith. Tolstoy, he was, um, he, 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 he was really impacted when he read the Sermon on the Mount as a young man. And he decided that he wanted to take the Sermon on the Mount and live it. And he, was, he, he tried to be militant. As soon as he, he'd read the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, was, he was an author, he, was, he had, um, had family money, and um, he had an estate. He was, he was a wealthy man. And he read the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he released all of the, um, uh, all the servants he had. He, 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 he gave, them, um, gave them wages and said, go, you're, you're free, you don't have to work here. Um, he... Uh, he gave away vast amounts of his wealth and he himself started working his own land. He, he, he wore rags. Um, he suddenly lived this very, very humble life. His wife said, Leo, what's, what's going on? You're ruining us. This is awful. Look how miserable we are. 
this is terrible. And eventually he, 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 he kept a little bit for them to live on. He wasn't quite so harsh. But he, he lived life looking at the Sermon on the Mount and trying to literally apply it in such a strict way that he was, he was miserable. He was constantly reproaching himself. Several times he took very publicly, he made it public that he'd taken a vow of chastity. He fathered 16 children, so clearly that one didn't, didn't really go to plan. Um, but he kept on, he kept on trying to self-impose these rules and restrictions, these things that he, he, he didn't feel that he could live a life with any joy, with any, any, any real enjoyment of life, any fulfilment, because he was constantly looking at the teachings of Jesus and saying, I'm not living up to it, I'm not living up to it, I'm not living up to it. And eventually, Tolstoy... The more he wrote, the more famous he became. And the more famous he became, the more wealthy. And he, he, he felt he was completely unworthy. He didn't want the wealth. He, he was ashamed of it. And so in the end, he took himself away, he disappeared. He was estranged from his family and he died a, a lonely pauper on the streets. One of the greatest novelists the world's ever seen. And because of his faith, that's how he ended up. Not a great advert for the Christian faith. Dostoevsky, he sounds a lot more fun. So he, he didn't start life as a Christian. Um, in fact, as he started to write, um, again, he came from a, a well-heeled family, and as he started to write and he, he grew famous and he had wealth and he would spend it on, on gambling and on drinking and on women, and um, he lived a real sort of... He was probably kind of a 19th century um, rock star. You know, he, if, 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 if he'd had a TV, he would have thrown it out of a hotel room window at some point. And he was part of an organisation which was um, anti-Tsarist, so they wanted to overthrow the, the, um, the, the ruling regime. And um, one day he was arrested as part of this, this organisation and sentenced to death. But the Tsar had recognised that... Um, he, wanted to, he didn't want to execute. I don't know why. I don't know the full background. But what I do know is that um, he arranged this mock execution. So um, Dostoevsky and several of his, his colleagues were blindfolded, put against the wall. The firing squad were brought in. And there was the ready, aim. And these, these guys, they were convinced, any second, bullet through the brain, I'm dead. Any second. And then just before the word fire, or whatever the Russian equivalent is, um, there, a messenger turned up, and it was all, all pre-arranged, but these guys didn't know that. And the messenger turned up, there's a message from the Tsar, he wants you to go and do a few years hard labour instead, and then you'll be free once you've served your time. He'd been, as far as he was concerned, he had received a second chance. On his way to the hard labour camp, he was given a copy of the New Testament, the only book that he would be allowed to keep in prison. And he read it. And he read it through the eyes of someone who recognised that they had been given this second chance, who recognised that, that he was on the verge of death and he hadn't done anything to deserve the reprieve, he hadn't earned the reprieve, he was, he was, he was banged to rights, he'd been part of this organisation, this, this terrorist group, but he was given this second chance. And so he then read the gospel through those eyes and that changed his life. Because from that moment on, he knew joy. 
His wealth he used to bless others. He celebrated life. He was grateful every day. And he, he absolutely took his second chance and lived a life that reflected the gospel that he'd read. For so many people, they think that becoming a Christian involves living a Leo Tolstoy-style life. One of rules, one of discipline, one of, frankly, a lack of joy. They don't know that actually, rather than that legalistic approach to faith, Jesus encouraged a Dostoevsky approach to life. Not the drink and the women and everything else beforehand, but that moment where you suddenly realize Jesus. Jesus changes everything. I'm going to share another quote from, from Barack Obama. Obama speaks about the, um, the Afro-American church in America that he had grown up in. He says, out of necessity, the black church rarely had the luxury of separating individual salvation from collective salvation. It had to serve as the center of the community's political, economic, and social, as well as spiritual life. It understood in an intimate way the biblical call to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and challenge powers and principalities. In the history of these struggles, I was able to see faith as more than just a comfort to the weary or a hedge against death. Rather, it was an active, palpable agent in the world. In the day-to-day -day work of the men and women I met in church each day, in their ability to make a way out of no way and maintain hope and dignity in the direst of circumstances, I could see the word made manifest. In other words... He didn't look around and see, and see people beating themselves up for their, their personal failures to achieve the, the, the perfect standards that Jesus set. Instead, he saw a church full of people who, gave, who went around grateful that they were forgiven and responding by wanting to serve others and share as best they could the example of Jesus. The word made manifest. On Alpha, so often, people come in and I've heard the analogy that it's like they're watching TV. Now, if you watch TV without an aerial, that's what you get. That's what you get. This fuzzy screen. And you could, you could sit there and you could say, oh, I'm watching TV. Yeah, of course I am. Look, there's TV, I'm watching it. It's on. And you'd be absolutely right. But you wouldn't enjoy it, would you? There'd be this frustration. You would have heard other people talking about, oh, did you, did you see so-and-so? Did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see the latest Netflix series? Did you see Eurovision? <laughs> and you'd be thinking, well, I'm, I'm sitting here watching TV like everyone else, but I'm missing something. I'm missing something. Of course, the thing you're missing is an aerial. Now, apologies that I've, I've chosen a TV set there, which is probably out in the 1950s. Um, but it's still true today, isn't it? If you don't plug in an aerial, you don't get reception. You don't get to see. You don't get to fully appreciate and enjoy watching TV. Well, living life is exactly the same. 
Jesus offers us an aerial to plug in, and suddenly you think, wow, this thing that I've been sitting watching for, for so many years, I'm seeing it differently now. I'm appreciating so much more of what it's got to offer. I'm enjoying it. It's not that I'm thinking, oh, I've been told I've got to plug in the, oh, all right, now I've got it, it's, it, it brings it to life. You suddenly start doing something with this contraption that you've, you've never been able to do before. And so, it's like we plug in an aerial. When we come to know Jesus, when we come to recognize him and, and read about his life and his teachings, when we read the, the way that the church formed, the way that people had spiritual experiences, the learning, the learning that, that we see in the New Testament and we apply it to our lives. And suddenly knowing Jesus is a wonderful thing. Another C.S. Lewis quote. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. One guy I know who did the Alpha course, he said, I, 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 he got to the end of the course, and he said, I feel like I was seeing everything in black and white before, and now I'm seeing it in color. And those sorts of testimonies are not unusual. In fact, they're common for so many people who who actually take the time to, to read about Jesus, to learn about him, to listen about him. They suddenly realize that, that Leo Tolstoy approach to faith is it's not, it's not the Jesus way. It's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is far more seeing the grace and appreciating it and understanding it and then responding to it. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we are not made perfect this side of the grave. We are still sinners. Of course we are. We still have all the habits and faults that we had before. But through Jesus, through Jesus, we can come before our Father in heaven. We can acknowledge our imperfections, our impurities, our sin. And we can say, Father, forgive me. And we can know that in a way that cannot be done by anybody else in the world, we are forgiven. So that one day when we stand in judgment, the God of justice that we heard about earlier will have a list of all of our iniquities, all the things we've done wrong. But then Jesus will stand up and say, He's one of mine. She's one of mine. And so we will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now truth is one of those concepts that that we often, we often talk about, what is truth? And without going too deeply into that, when we, when we begin to explore faith, when we begin to, to read the gospel, we live in a world where we're encouraged to understand everything, to rationalize, to, to, to break things down piece by piece, to understand intellectually what we're reading. When we, do that with, when we do that with the gospel, 
we begin to understand that this system of values that Jesus taught, it was revolutionary. It changed everything. And yet, it wasn't just for a moment. The core values that Jesus taught still form the basis of our justice system today. Jesus changed the world and the changes that he, he implemented are still, are still relevant today. They're still relevant because Jesus wasn't just sent for a, a, a one specific moment in time. He was sent for all of time. But alongside an understanding of the difference Jesus made, there has to be an experienced understanding as well. There has to be a recognition that in our lives, we can have a relationship with Jesus. When we open a door, when we, when we let Jesus into our lives, when we pray to him, and when we, when we consider the answers to prayer, the blessings that we've seen, or when we look back at our own life story, and we can see the number of times that circumstances or coincidences have happened in such a way that we've been in a certain place at a certain time to meet a certain person, to hear a certain message, and we can look back and we can see how God has been with us. Because he is with each and every one of us on our journey. Whatever you've done in your past, God knows about it and he loves you. But he doesn't dwell on that. He doesn't dwell on that. The name God identifies with is I am. He calls himself I am. Not I was, because he doesn't dwell in the past. Not I will be, because he's not an unfulfilled God. He says, I am. He meets you wherever you happen to be in life. If that's at the bottom of the pit, God meets you there. If that's at the crest of a wave, God meets you there. And anybody, anywhere in between those two points, God meets us. And we can experience his presence and his love if we go looking for him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Because Jesus offers that missing piece in all of us, that piece that can satisfy the, the yearning that we have, the desire that we have, it cannot be satisfied by material means, by financial means, by status, by career, by relationships. It cannot be satisfied by any of those things. It can only be satisfied by a relationship with our God. Jesus brings a fulfillment to our lives. He offers us a fulfilled life. A life where we're not broken by the circumstances that we live through because we have a hope. We have a hope in Jesus. A life where we can be part of a, a, an organisation, the church, the organisation that God himself ordained to, to make a difference in the world and we do make a difference. Sometimes it might not feel like it but the church makes a massive difference to the world around us. Even atheists often make the comment that although they don't like the church, they don't like faith, they don't like God, think it's all nonsense, actually, if you take the church out of society, society collapses. 
the church plays such an important role. And that's not a coincidence. That's because God ordained the church. God chose the church. He, he designed the church. This is not just a, an accident that we, that we do what we do, that we are what we are. The church, right here, right now, and across the country, across the world, there are churches that are propping up individuals, societies, families, and making a true difference to lives. Because that's what God does. I just want to finish up this morning by looking at a passage from John's Gospel about one man who saw the life more clearly after an experience with Jesus. It comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. This man spent his entire life unable to move, unable to to, to live a fulfilled life. He's paralysed. And he's been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we don't know his exact condition, but we know that he, he, can't, he can't easily move himself. And there was this pool in Jerusalem. And every day at a certain time, the waters were stirred. And the waters became quite cloudy, some say it was a mineral content, some say it was filth, some say it was just a silt on the bottom. But as the waters were stirred, local, local folklore had it that whoever got down to the waters first and put the afflicted part of their body in or just got in, they would be healed. And this man, no matter where he put his mat, as he sat on his mat, when the water was stirred up, there was always someone else getting in first. Imagine the frustration of that. Every single day, there's someone who gets in first because someone turns up who actually, they've, they've, they've tripped over something. Almost. They haven't, they haven't got a, a really serious condition. They can, they can move pretty quickly, but they've got a bit of a, a, a bit of tennis elbow or... or, or They've got a, I don't know, earache or a bit, of, a bit of a cold or something. And so they come along to the pool, they know what time the water's going to be stirred. I'm there, I, I just can't move myself. It takes so long to get myself to the pool. There is always someone who walks over and sticks their arm in or jumps in. They get the benefit and I don't. Because I'm sitting here on my mat 
Jesus walks up and just says, do you want to be healed? Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. It's one of the great stories of Jesus cutting out the rules of the world, disrupting the rhythm of life. For 38 years, the man has sat there desperately hoping that one day no one will turn up and and even if it takes him half an hour to shift himself to the bank and get in, he'll be able to do it. He lives in that hope. That's where he he puts all all of his hopes in life. It hasn't happened. And it must have been days when he thought, it's never going to happen. And Jesus just walks along and just says, do you want me? Ignore, ignore the pull, ignore the stirring, ignore the local stories, ignore the people that might be quicker than you, more able than you. Don't compare them. Do you want me? Then get up off your mat and walk. There's loads and loads and loads that we could say about that particular story. But the one thing that I would like just to challenge you on this morning as, you, as we go and have tea and coffee after the service and as you go out into the world to face whatever is thrown at you this week, I just want to challenge you. What's your mat? What's the security in which you truly focus your life? What is the one area, your comfort zone that you don't like the idea of leaving? What is the one thing that perhaps prevents you from trusting in Jesus to the point where you're prepared to get up and not rely on the mat, not rely on your one little bubble of security in the world? But please don't feel beaten up or depressed as you leave church because notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, leave your mat. That, that, one, that one possession that you've been basing yourself on, you've been sitting on, that one thing where you can sit and you can feel, this is my mat. This is my place in the world. This is where I am and everything that goes on around me, I'm safe. Jesus doesn't say, leave that. He says, roll it up. Bring it with you. For so many people in the world, they sort of think that if they become a Christian, the church is going to demand their money, demand everything. It's going to be a meagre and frugal and miserable existence, but that's not the teaching of Jesus. It's just that we don't let those things be Lord of our life. Jesus is Lord of our life. It's okay to have a mat, but we put it where Jesus tells us to put it. We use it as Jesus directs. Jesus has not come to be boring. He comes to fulfill life. Jesus is not untrue. He is the epitome of truth. Jesus is not irrelevant. He is the most relevant thing in the world today. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you that we live lives of privilege compared to so many people in the world. Because there are so many people in the world who don't know you. And Father God, we pray that you will help us to recognize the opportunities that you provide to pick up our mat and to follow you. Opportunities that you provide to share our faith, to talk about our church, to talk about our own personal testimony with new people. And Father, we pray that you will help us to to break down the barrier of fear, whatever shape that might take for each one of us. Father, we pray you'll help us to break it down and to be bold, not forcing the gospel on people, but at least, at least dropping it into conversation, at least giving people open invitations to ask questions, to examine their own personal relationship with you. Father, we pray that for all those people who, who come out with the, the mediocre, lukewarm statement that I think there's probably something in the world, Lord, we pray that you will use us individually and corporately to, to say, yes, there is. There is something else. But don't just leave it there. Look into it. There is something amazing. There is an aerial to plug into that blank screen. There is, there is color vision to be had in the world. There is a saviour who died for you. And so, Father, as we look at the world around us, help us not to be discouraged in our own faith, but instead help us to burn more fiercely for you. Help us to be the ones that demonstrate the need that this world has for a God of love and a God of truth and a God of justice. Father, we thank you that as we look around, we, if we look hard enough, we see, we see answers to prayer, we see miracles, we see you acting and working around us and inside us as well. And Father God, help us to celebrate those moments, to celebrate those moments with you and to share them with those who perhaps don't yet know you. Father, Help us to play our small part in building your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now I'm going to invite Alan and the band to come and lead us in our closing song of worship. said Jesus changes everything and some songs try to pack in so much of that gospel message and, and I think this is one of those songs
coffee with us, say hello, have a chat, catch up. And um, please remember also the prayer team will be around at the front if you'd like to talk anything through that has been said this morning. Uh, we'll just close with a blessing together. Father, we just thank you for the time we have had together today. We thank you for those who shared earlier their personal achievements, birthdays, and news to give you thanks for. We thank you for Tom and for the word that he's brought this morning. And we ask that you'll just give us strength and wisdom as we aspire to live out our faith this week in the knowledge of your words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Give us your joy and bring us back next Sunday full of new experiences in you, having put you first this week. Amen. <laughs>